Welcome to the latest edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, coming to you via podcast. This program is supported by listeners. Today I want to single out David Welch of Aromas, California. He was one of my AM radio listeners who's made the transition to the web, and I appreciate his support. If you'd like to help out, drop by my website, peterbcollins.com, and click on the tab that says You Can Help. Your voluntary subscription rates start as low as $5 a month. Here comes the next installment in the Boiling Frogs interview series, co-hosted with Sabelle Edmonds. And our guest today is Chris Hedges. He's a man I really admire. He worked for the New York Times for many years, served for eight years as their Middle East bureau chief. And he's an outspoken critic of the Obama administration and of the corporate media. Stand by for some powerful commentary from Chris Hedges here on the Boiling Frogs edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Welcome to Boiling Frogs. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the fight is fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. But do they? NSA's illegal domestic wiretapping, FBI's national security letters, state secret privilege. ESA's one million plus no fly list, persecution of government whistleblowers, perpetual wars, rendition and torture. Can you feel the water boiling? Welcome to the Boiling Frogs with Sabelle Edmonds. I'm Peter B. Collins. And today we're delighted to present a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. He spent many years uh, working for the New York Times, seven of those years in the Middle East. He was also a correspondent in Central America, in Africa, and the Balkans. And he has uh, written a number of books. It's important to note, too, that he has a degree in divinity and uh, is a Unitarian Universalist minister. He was uh, ordained honorarily with the Reverend Jeremiah Wright in May of 2009. And as a journalist, as I mentioned, he's uh, worked around the world, uh, primarily for the New York Times. And since he left there a few years ago, he's been writing books prolifically. And he publishes columns on a regular basis at Robert Shear's website, truthdig.com. Chris Hedges, welcome to our program today. Thank you. Um, There's so much to talk with you about. And I wanted to start with your most recent book, which uh, sadly I have not yet read, called Empire of Illusion, subtitled The End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle. If you could, give us a quick sketch of the book as a jumping-off point for this conversation. Well, it's a an argument that we're probably the most illusioned society on the planet. Um, we have unmoored ourselves from reality. We uh, believe this mantra, which is disseminated across the political spectrum, that if we dig deep enough within ourselves or 
uh, focus on happiness or grasp that we are truly exceptional or believe in Jesus, uh, reality is never an impediment to what we desire. And uh, that is fed to us by Oprah, by the Christian right, by Hollywood, by corporatism, by positive psychology. And it's very dangerous because we are barreling towards a world of stark limitations and, uh, and not necessarily a decline in lifestyle, but certainly a decline in consumption, a decline in income. Uh, and uh, what that illusion does is allow us to remain in a kind of perpetual uh, childishness or infantilism uh, where we'll eventually get everything we want. And as that chasm opens up between that illusion and what is actually happening to most of us uh, when we begin to realize that those jobs are not coming back when we uh, find that it is our home that is being foreclosed or we can't um, we are going into bankruptcy because we can't pay our medical bills then uh, you have a huge segment of the population which is unprepared psychologically emotionally intellectually for what hits them uh, and they will react like children which is to uh, search for a demagogue or a savior, somebody who promises moral renewal, vengeance, uh, and new glory. Uh, it's an old story. Uh, empires in their dotage or decline, that doesn't matter whether it's Rome or the Austro-Hungarian, uh, oftentimes become uh, frighteningly disconnected from what's happening to them. We uh, now have run up the largest deficits in human history uh, just from an economic standpoint. We cannot afford our imperial expansion, uh, which is quite literally hollowing us out from the inside. It's why our infrastructure is crumbling. We have uh, seen the looting of the U.S. Treasury and the largest transference of wealth upwards uh, in American history uh, with economic, Barack Obama's economic advisor, Lawrence Summers talking about a jobless recovery. Uh, and we, we the walls are literally crumbling around us, mm -hmm. uh, and we don't see it. And, and that, that is exceedingly dangerous. And part of this is the sense of exceptionalism that is promoted by a myopic media. Of course. The media is uh, guilty of disseminating this fantasy. Uh, when we talk about uh, the recession ending, as if this is a recession, uh, the uh, economic indicators uh, are, are, are great if you are part of that tiny oligarchy, that 1% that controls more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. Uh, but for the working class, which has largely been decimated, uh, and the middle class, which is under tremendous assault, um, the situation is grim. And getting grimmer. But on my big screen, flat screen TV, American Idol is there to distract me on a nightly well, basis. That's that's right. I mean, it, and and that's you know societies that unmoor themselves from reality. And Cicero wrote about it when he when he critiqued the Roman arena, uh, 
poison their civil and political discourse with spectacle and uh, entertainment and trivia. Uh, and, uh, you know, much of what's happening to us can be blamed on this trans- transformation from a print-based culture to a, an image-based culture. You have 42 million Americans who are illiterate. You have another 50 million Americans who are semi-literate, meaning they read at a fourth or fifth grade level. That's a third of the country. And then you have a huge segment of the population which is functionally literate. I mean, they can read, but they don't. Uh, And uh, totalitarian societies are image-based societies. We, uh, We no longer deal with complexity and nuance. We confuse how we are made to feel with knowledge. We confuse propaganda with ideology. That's how Barack Obama got elected. Um, And uh, invest our emotional life in spectacle. Uh, And boy, that is is where we're we're at. And and societies that go down that route um, collapse morally, uh, politically, economically. And Chris Hedges, when you and I spoke in... uh the election year of 2008, you were not buying what Obama was selling. And I give you credit, you are not a gloater who's going to tell me you told us so. But go ahead and tell us what you told me at the time, because you were on to uh, the kind of spectacle, and in some respects, Obama was kind of a last-ditch extension of American exceptionalism into a slightly new direction. Well, Obama functioned as a brand. Uh, If you remember a few years ago, Calvin Klein and and Benetton uh, put up these billboards with people of color, HIV-positive models, uh, and it was meant to associate their product with with the risque, with even the progressive. Uh, But the purpose, of course, with any brand is to make a consumer confuse a brand with an experience, and that's precisely what uh, Obama was. He, it's not accidental that his campaign won uh, the big advertising award of the year, beating out Nike and uh, Apple and all these other big corporations. Uh, if you look, and I credit Dennis Kucinich here, I mean, Dennis told me, he said, you know, forget the rhetoric, forget the rhetoric. Look at, you know, he was imitating the announcers uh, when he was a boy at a ballpark. He says, get the scorecard, get the scorecard. <laughs> he says, look at the record. Um, his voting record in his two years in the Senate was abysmal, actually less progressive than Hillary Clinton. Uh, and he was a, an opaque figure with very little... Uh, track record on the national scene, so it could be painted, uh, you know, sort of to please any particular group uh, that wanted to see themselves uh, within his candidacy. Um, but his, his voting record was not good at all, and, and um, I think gave an indication, along with The Audacity of Hope, which you, if you read it, uh, it's a fascinating book because uh, almost every other page, he is reassuring uh, corporations that he believes in 
the unfettered market capitalism that got us into so much trouble. Um, so I, I don't think it took a lot of research, um, uh, but I think uh, a cold, hard look at Obama as a candidate uh, revealed that uh, he was not going to uh, disrupt the system of the corporate state or interfere with our permanent war economy or uh, the surveillance state or uh, thwart the imperial expansion in Afghanistan and the occupation of Iraq and all of that, or disrupt Israel's um, brutal repression of the Palestinians, especially in Gaza. And then, of course, as a candidate during that 22-day period when the Israelis were uh, using attack aircraft on densely populated areas in Gaza City, um, Obama was mute. Yep. Uh, so uh, I think that the indications were there. Um, but, um, you know, $600 million uh, can spread very effective propaganda. And, and unfortunately, um, those people who consider themselves progressive swallowed it. Chris, this is a quote from your excellency titled, Nader Was Right. Liberals are going nowhere with Obama. Our last hope is to step outside of the two-party system and build movements that defy the Democrats and the Republicans. Then you're talking about what happens and what would happen if we fail. Can you tell us what happens if we don't do this? Well, what's been happening for the last few decades, which is a coup d'etat in slow motion. Um, we have seen, I think, what what the, our, our greatest living political philosopher, Sheldon Woolen, calls a system of inverted totalitarianism uh, rise to replace American democracy. Inverted totalitarianism, according to Woolen, uh, doesn't function like classical totalitarianism. It is uh, a system that isn't built around a particular demagogue or, or leader. It finds its expression in the anonymity of the corporate state. Uh, it uh, is not a radical movement the way communist cells or parties or fascist parties were seeking to destroy uh, an old decaying system, uh, but it uh, purportedly... Uh, pays homage or fealty to electoral politics and a free press and constitutional rights, yet so corrupts the levers of power uh, as to render citizens uh, impotent. And we have seen that over and over. Where you can go into the health care debate, you can go into the FISA Reform Act, uh, you can look at the bailout. I mean, bailout, opposition to the bailout was 100 to 1, the first bailout of $700 billion across the political spectrum. Uh, some of the most impassioned speeches denouncing the bailout were delivered by right-wing Republicans on the House floor, and yet it passes anyway. Why does it pass? Because, of course, the corporations want it passed. They have the money and the army of 35,000 lobbyists in Washington to get what they want at our expense. And unless we build counter-movements, uh, and I don't see any on the horizon, 
um, uh, we are going to continue to be fleeced. I mean, the uh, Wall Street is right back doing what they had done before, this time with taxpayer money. Uh, and when all of this goes bust, they will come back and raid the U.S. Treasury for more. Uh, and they'll keep doing it in a kind of pathological uh, drive that ultimately will turn the U.S. dollar into junk. Um, and nobody's stopping it. Nobody's standing up to it. Uh, I think the left forgot that it's not our job to take power. Uh, Karl Popper, the great Viennese philosopher, was right. The question is not how do you get good people to rule. The question is how do you limit the damage the power elite does to the rest of us. And that comes by making the power elite frightened of you. I lived in France. I watched the unions in France do this quite effectively. Uh, all of the correctives of American democracy came through movements. The Liberty Party, which fought slavery, the suffragists, the labor movement, uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, none of these people achieved formal power. Most of them didn't achieve any formal power. Uh, and yet they were the engine of real reform. And uh, uh, if we don't step outside of the two-party system, and outside of the mainstream, then we are going to end with a state of neo-feudalism, uh, an oligarchic state uh, where um, very repressive security measures keep the mass, probably two-thirds of American society, in uh, impoverishment. And, and we're, you know, you go up to the towns that I'm from in Maine, and um, they're destroyed, these old mill towns. Uh, physically, the community is destroyed. There are no jobs. Walmart has sucked the main street dry. The mills are gone. Uh, and, and with the breakdown, the physical breakdown of community, you have the psychological breakdown. Uh, you know, there's methamphetamine labs and domestic abuse and all that. The town my grandparents are from in Mechanic Falls, which was a you know, when I was a boy, uh, uh, not prosperous, but certainly working-class town uh, with a bank. <laughs> the bank's gone. Um, there's a strip joint in the middle of the town. I mean, it, it, it is, it's just become seedy and tawdry and broken, and that's just been repeated across the landscape of the country. Well, Chris, let's talk about this problem of uh, lack of movement, because this internet activism has been limited to right, 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 talk, talk, talk. Everybody wants to raise awareness. What is your activism? What are you doing? I'm trying to raise awareness. But then it just ends there. I mean, there are no suggestions of course of real action. How do we go about translating all this, you know, in code, awareness into real movement action? How do we go about doing that? Well, the problem is that you have a certain segment of the population that's aware, and the Internet is useful in terms of disseminating information. Um, but uh, they have invested themselves within the Democratic Party. And, uh, and the Democratic Party has been consistently betraying the working class of this country since the passage of NAFTA in 1994. Uh, so I think we we are going to see, we are already seeing 
the phenomena that Dostoevsky described in Notes from Underground, where you have the enlightened man, not given a name, but people call him Mouse Man, who uh, places his faith in a bankrupt liberalism, and then uh, all of his high ideals are not carried out, and so he becomes cynical and a kind of defeated dreamer. And I, you know, notice that this kind of grassroots, virtual grassroots movement that the Obama campaign mobilized for the election has just vanished, dissipated. Uh, and I worry that, uh, especially among the younger segment of the population, uh, they'll just wash their hands of the whole thing uh, because they were quite correctly used. Um, so the, the, the Internet is a curse and a blessing. I mean, these virtual communities are not real communities. Uh, they oftentimes serve to sever you from localities, which is very dangerous. All organizing, finally, is local, uh, and it has to be done. You know, the, the Internet is a great tool for calling a meeting, but it's got to be done in person, in groups. Uh, so um, I fear that the, the the bankrupt liberal class of this country uh, will embrace a kind of cynicism which will uh, in essence uh, allow these pernicious right-wing proto-fascist forces uh, to capture and express the rage that large numbers of Americans, especially working-class Americans, feel and are going to uh, experience to an even greater degree in the months ahead. Well, back to the Internet and raising awareness. One of the uh, trends that I, I keep seeing, you know, on our website we keep talking about forget the establishment party, which has two faces, basically the Republicans and Democrats, but then we end up getting like-minded people, a small group, and, and that happens, you know, throughout these uh, Internet forums, and, and it doesn't go beyond this certain segment who already engage, is engaged in critical thinking, uh, who, who are concerned, who want to do something. You know, you get the news and say, okay, 68% of the Americans are not at all concerned about these new X-ray machines, uh, screening machines by TSA. They, they believe that, you know, it, it's warranted because of the, you know, because of the terror. They are driven by fear. And, and uh, we don't reach those people. I'm just going to give an example. It would be truthdig.com, a great site, great articles by you. But most people who are coming and reading Chris Hedges or, or uh, other, you know, great writers who have been trying to, to do this, they just look beyond this Democratic headquarters or the Republicans ends up being the same audience, the same people who actually are already aware. And we are not going beyond that, and we are left with that 70, 80 percent who lacks appetite. Yeah, but they all voted for Obama. So how aware were they? I mean, well, the... that's the thing. And, and uh, I see even some of the websites who are going back and they are saying, well, you know, they are disappointed. Um, I'm one of the people who didn't vote for him. 
Okay, I'm one of the people who, who was looking at his voting records, who was looking at his background, who was looking at the brand established as Obama. But many people, and I will tell you this, even the ones who are criticizing now, just wait, two and a half years from now, there's going to be someone even worse on the other side. Right, They're going well, to go back and advertise for the same Obama. This well, is what's happening with congressional elections. The right, same that's, people. That's exactly what will happen. I can see the Obamaites just praying that Sarah Palin somehow does get the Republican nomination because that's what they're looking for. They want that extreme contrast uh, so that people will overlook uh, what we've already seen in the first year of the Obama presidency as a failure to provide any meaningful reform of health care. In fact, it's just been a sop to the very industries who put us in the predicament that uh, the change was supposed to address. And uh, as you ticked off, the surveillance state continues. Uh, People are passive about the promise to bring troops home from Iraq. And uh, it doesn't appear to me that the timetable they're offering us is achievable. So we're going to have another whoops. uh, You know, it's going to take more time. Well, they're not bringing any troops back from Iraq. I mean, you know, that's clear. They're they're talking about, even when they talk about a withdrawal, uh, they talk about a withdrawal of combat forces. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these huge super bases, especially these four large, essentially the size of American cities, these are these are permanent bases. And uh, uh, military planners have even publicly acknowledged that a residual force of 40 or 50,000 U.S. troops is going to be in Iraq for at least 10 to 15 years. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no withdrawal from Iraq, mm-hmm. nor is there one planned. And, Chris, I want to turn to the episode in uh, coast Afghanistan that occurred uh, right at the end of December, because the way it's played in the American media is that brave CIA officers were uh, 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 ambushed by a Jordanian uh, agent who we thought was on our side, uh, and uh, that they lost their lives in this uh, great effort to protect our freedom and uh, whatever else they argue is the mission in Afghanistan. But when you put together all the facts, and they are available, the New York Times, your former employer, uh, other uh, news outlets, do report all the facts, but most Americans who use television as their primary source of of news uh, don't get the context and don't get the details. And so what we've learned is that the suicide bomber was a well-known supporter of al-Qaeda in Jordan. He went to Gaza after the Israeli attacks that you referred to earlier uh, at the end of 2008 and in early 2009. He's a medical doctor who went there to try to help people who'd been uh, injured in the assaults. So uh, he came back to Jordan and was imprisoned. 
And uh, I can only imagine, because we have rendered people to Jordan for uh, special interrogation techniques, that he was subjected to some forms of uh, so-called enhanced interrogation or torture. Uh, Whatever did occur there while he was in prison, he pretended to flip. And he won the confidence of his Jordanian minder and the U.S. CIA agents, and he was able to gain access. They tell us now that they were just about to pat him down uh, to check for explosives when he detonated the devices that he was wearing. But what's often underplayed or just completely missing from the story is that the Pakistan Taliban claims credit for this assault, claims credit for this double or triple agent, depending on how you view him, and uh, they say that this is in direct retaliation for the expansion of drone attacks that's been employed by the Obama administration almost since the first week that they entered office last January. And yet this context is not provided, and the myth of American exceptionalism, that everything that we do is right and justifiable, is, uh, is you know, inferred in all of the coverage. Yet there is a clear explanation for why those CIA officers and two Blackwater contractors and one Jordanian minder were taken out at coast. Well, we don't have any grasp of the cost of this war on Pakistani and Afghan civilians, just as we have no grasp of the cost on for Iraqi civilians of the occupation. Now probably hundreds of thousands, some estimates over a million dead in Iraq. Uh, I think some 700 civilians have been killed in Pakistan alone from drone attacks since Barack Obama took office. Um, I've covered insurgencies. I spent five years covering the war in El Salvador. I know that this kind of violence is the best recruiting tool that al-Qaeda and the Taliban have. And most of these CIA officers are, at least from my own experience overseas, pretty useless. They don't understand the language. They're culturally, historically illiterate. Uh, They run uh, their information systems and their operations through informants who do it for money who are usually the biggest scumbags in the village, which is why you have had repeated instances where large numbers of civilians have been killed in airstrikes, and it turns out that they were a rival clan or a rival uh, faction that uh, the informant wanted to get rid of. Uh, it, It is just a dirty, unwinnable, Operation, and it, and it goes back to this blind belief. I mean, Graham Greene wrote about it in The Quiet American, that uh, there's always a third way, that, that uh, um, you know, we may make a few mistakes and we may kill a few people, but uh, we're always on the side of virtue. And uh, that is, that lie or myth is accepted uh, by the press across the mainstream, and, of course, allows a bunch of incompetent thugs uh, and militarists to go into these countries and unleash tremendous amounts of human suffering. 
uh, and waste, of course, billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars. Um, and we have just seen that folly over and over and over. I mean, going uh, back to Vietnam, uh, you know, the French in Algeria, uh, it, it doesn't work. And um, and we never learn. And, and Chris, uh, in contrast to the indiscriminate loss of life that has occurred by the use of these uh, remote-controlled drones... Uh, and and there was a female student in Pakistan who confronted uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, directly about this when she traveled there in November of uh, '09. The uh, Taliban attack in Coast was very targeted. They were going after the CIA officers who were calling the predator drone strikes. So you know, unlike the the way that we operate uh, remotely in a way that preserves American lives and discounts the value of the lives of other nations. Uh, This was a very pinpoint um, intentional attack on the very means that uh, I think have raised the greatest backlash in Pakistan. Yeah. Um, And I think it's just evidence, another small piece of evidence as to how disconnected these CIA officers are uh, and how um, they have not been able to penetrate al-Qaeda. Um, it, I, I don't know what's happening currently, but I spent a year of my life covering al-Qaeda for the New York Times. And uh, when I covered al-Qaeda, we had no human assets inside al-Qaeda at all. Um, it was just an organization that we had not been able to penetrate. Uh and and so there's a lot of flailing about. There's a lot of lashing out indiscriminately and blindly um, with hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of civilian casualties as a result, both within Pakistan and Afghanistan. And it's been the case for, for the longest time. I, I grew up in Iran. I was there when the revolution took place. I was there during the Iran-Iraq war. I was 11 years old, and my father took me to this hospital, and he was a surgeon there, and showed me this little infants, these babies, who, who had turned to charcoal, basically, their bodies. The tubes inserted into their face drilled, you know, holes drilled in their face for, for breathing, and said, this is war. This, this context is missing. We don't see these pictures. We don't see the horror. We, we see the number. And, and I, I want to go back to that adjective you used, scumbags. I would believe if you are on the other side, if you are the recipient, I was, once upon a time I was, both in Turkey and in Iran, then you, I would apply that same adjective, scumbag, equally to the CIA people. I mean, first of all, it is just this assumed right given to them to be there and interfere. It does apply. So there's this superiority that happens in this country, that if one million people lost their lives in Vietnam or 800,000 people in Iran and some of these chemical weapons we sold to Saddam and gave Saddam were used on them, those are just some petty numbers. And and our guys, eight of them get killed. It's a... If, 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 if what they're saying is true, if it's war, they should get killed because that's war. You get killed. And their life in, in their lives in no way has more value than the scumbags who are blowing themselves up. 
bodies and explosives. That's the only way maybe they can defend themselves. But now that's one point, you know, that we don't hear because that's the point that goes on the other side, and I think it's as valid. Yeah, well, when I used the word scumbag, I was talking about the CIA people. No, 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 I agree. Um, <laughs> the, um, and, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't... I've had hours and hours of my life debating Hamas leaders about suicide bombing, which I don't support. Uh, I don't support the taking of any innocent life uh, at all. Um, and I think that Hamas makes a big mistake. I think they, it is a war crime. I think it's wrong. I understand why they do it. Uh, and I've certainly always been very critical of what Israel does. Um, but, yeah, when you don't have planes and you don't have artillery and you don't have armored personnel carriers, then you use human bombs. That's right. not a new story. It, it was true in Sri Lanka. It was true during the occupation of Beirut. It was true uh, during the French-Algerian conflict. Uh, you know, so I get it. Um, uh, I think the other point you make is very valid. Um, for those of us who have been to war, one of the deep frustrations is that the images of war so heavily sanitized and censored that people have no concept of what war does to human bodies. And the fact that even though those of us, you know, who basically call ourselves or maybe proud to, to name ourselves as progressives, we are supporting it. Our tax money is going into implementing. And our representatives, they are the ones who are sanctioning it. And our elected president is the one who orders it. So when it comes down to it, all of us are supporting it. We may not, you know, think yeah. that we are so, well, we are that, supporting it. I wrote an article for The Nation magazine that said if the United States attacks Iran, I won't pay my income taxes anyway. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm with you on that. But until that happens, you're right. I have to use the word we, not them. Chris, I want to turn to a piece that you published at Truthdig back in December called Liberals Are Useless. And I want you to know that uh, it hit me right between the eyes. Uh, I am a, a, an unapologetic liberal. And uh, the one distinction I'll make is that the right-wing media in this country often paints uh, Barack Obama as a liberal and a socialist and a guy who wanted to have government-run health care, all of which are, are very far from the truth. But you offered an indictment of liberals in the current context, and I, for one, plead guilty. I have a great frustration with the liberal class in this country, which has um, proved spineless. Um, and I think because of that, have sort of quite legitimately become objects of ridicule. Uh, I think we claim to stand for the working class. We claim to oppose the permanent war economy uh, and support social programs and, and uh, have for almost two decades now thrown our support behind a party that doesn't stand for any of those values. Uh, so that as the situation deteriorates in the United States, economically and politically, uh, we don't have any credibility, uh, nor should we. Um, 
and that is sad and 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 dangerous um, because it in essence forfeits our political participation uh, in a moment of crisis uh, to the other side uh, and I hope that progressives and people who care about the working class in this country begin to wake up very, very quickly, because uh, if they don't, uh, that legitimate expression of rage is going to be channeled by a very virulent right wing to destroy what is left of our anemic democratic system. And let me ask you to comment on two examples. One is the so-called warrantless wiretapping. It was illegal until the Democrats uh, colluded with Republicans in August of 2008 to retroactively legalize the vast wiretapping and interception of uh, communications while immunizing the telephone companies who facilitated it. And uh, I repeatedly talked to elected officials, mostly Democrats, And they're shocked when one of the things I bluntly tell them is that I want my Fourth Amendment back and that you gave it away without a constitutional process, that the law you passed is unconstitutional. And the only reason uh, it's not uh, uh, challengeable is that you have the combination of the immunity for the phone companies and the expansion of the state secret privilege asserted by the Obama Justice Department. So we have a a circular here, a a catch-22, if you will, that prevents us from really exposing the unconstitutionality of the so-called FISA reforms and the fact that our uh, Fourth Amendment rights have been seriously eroded. Yeah, I mean, what the Obama administration has done is essentially codify all of the destruction of civil liberties that were begun by the Bush administration. So... There's been a kind of bipartisan codification of the destruction of our Constitution, including the abolition of habeas corpus. Um, When you look closely at uh, this new supermax prison, the Thompson Correctional Center in Illinois, which Obama has now designated as the residence for the detainees at Guantanamo. Um, We are bringing Guantanamo tactics to American soil because these detainees will not be tried in regular courts, Um, not least of all because they've been tortured. Um, And uh, I fear that that the legacy of the Bush administration uh, is, as you correctly point out, this destruction of the Fourth Amendment and the empowerment of the state to monitor tens of millions of American citizens without any kind of oversight. Uh, That is, of course, what the FISA Reform Act 
provided to the government. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, retroactively made legal what under the Constitution is illegal. So um, the Justice Department under Barack Obama has been as bad as the Justice Department under George W. Bush. And, and I think most constitutional lawyers, including ACLU lawyers like Ben Wisner, have mm -hmm. said as much. Mm -hmm. Now, let me offer one other example, and that is on the so-called health care reform. There was a commitment made by 60 members of the Progressive Caucus that they would not vote for a final bill that did not include a public option. And I don't want to get bogged down because I wasn't a fan of the watered-down public option by the time it got to endgame. But fundamentally, they laid out some markers and said that you cannot wedge us into voting for this thing if it doesn't have the elements that uh, we're looking for to provide competition and not just uh, force millions of Americans to buy health insurance that they can't afford from for-profit companies. Yet, as we see this winding down, there isn't going to be a conference committee. They're playing a ping-pong game where, essentially, the House is being forced to submit to the even worse bill that is coming out of the Senate. And my prediction is, and I, I was talking to activist uh, David Swanson about this yesterday, uh, we think that only a handful of those 60 will actually hold to their word, and that maybe a few of them will be permitted by the Speaker uh, to vote against the bill once she is sure she has enough votes to pass it. Uh, talk a little bit about that process and the way uh, progressives seem to be uh, destined to compromise well beyond even uh, what they set out their limits to be. Well, the whole debate about health care is a faux debate. It's driven by for-profit corporations who uh, have the legal right to hold your sick children hostage while they bankrupt you uh, so that you can try and save your son and daughter. Um, any honest discussion of health care in this country would begin with the factual acknowledgement that the for-profit health care industry is the problem and has to be destroyed. And that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because, once again, we live in a corporate state where corporations drive not only the policy, but the very discussion itself. And I don't think anyone can legitimately describe themselves as a progressive or perhaps even a liberal if they don't call for the destruction of this system, which saw 40,000 American citizens last year die because they couldn't afford proper medical care. These are companies that quite literally make their money off of death. And uh, I think that that is a good example of how utterly bankrupt the liberal class is because they're playing games with corporations whose loyalty is to their profit margins. Capitalists have no business being involved in health care. And um, I've lived in countries that have adequate health care, Switzerland, France, uh, 
have here is an utter abomination. Um, but who's saying that um, among elected officials, other than maybe Dennis Kucinich and a few others? Chris, I want to go back to your book. And there is a chapter in your book that is on adult entertainment industry, which you call it anything but adult and the graphic description of the ways in which women are depicted, used, discarded as commodities. And then you connect the horrors of Abu Ghraib to today's adult entertainment in which women are used and discarded sickeningly. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Well, the, the porn, we're a pornified culture, especially uh, when you look at people, my son, my oldest son's age is 19, he's largest users of porn on the internet are between the ages of 12 and 18. Um, the violence within porn, uh, there's a fusion of, or kind of an eroticizing of violence. Women are physically and verbally degraded um, by multiple partners. And the stills from Abu Ghraib, the photographs from Abu Ghraib, look as if they could be or have been taken from a set of gonzo porn. I agree. Uh, and the, it, it's just one more element of how we have dehumanized or allowed an industry, which makes four times the profits of Hollywood, to dehumanize women. Um, turn them into sexual commodities. Women in porn films have no personalities. They're not allowed to express any emotion or desire other than a, a craven uh, uh, a craven call to be uh, abused uh, uh, by male partners. Um and I, I think that that element or that pornification of American society, because it's something that's not, it's certainly extremely prevalent, uh, but it's not something that's often acknowledged um, publicly, uh, is just one more example of how we have effectively turned human beings into things. Uh, into objects uh, to gratify or destroy or, or both. And that's certainly what pornography does. Well, I have one question, and that is, you were with New York Times for uh, nearly two decades, and how did you last with the New York Times? Because, because I, was, I was not in the, you know, I was overseas. I was in places like Gaza or the Balkans. I didn't work. Uh, I didn't work in Washington, and I didn't work in New York. The closer you get to the epicenters of power, the less tolerance the New York Times has for uh, critical reporting of power centers. I could go on National Public Radio and say all sorts of things about Slobodan Milosevic that. Uh, or make judgments about Slobodan Milosevic that would have been, uh, well, that were uh, utterly unacceptable uh, in a domestic situation. Uh, 
and saying those same kinds of things about George W. Bush, um, however just or correct those statements may have been. So um, keeping your distance from the organization is the only reason I lasted. But I, I was hired as a foreign correspondent, and I, and that was my career there. As soon as I came back, the relationship very quickly soured. You were also a bureau chief, though, in, in the Middle East, were you not? Yeah, but uh, in the Arab, I, I I did not Jerusalem. I didn't. I well because I speak Arabic. I was I I was almost always in the Arab world or in the occupied territories. Mm-hmm. And so, over the course of your career with the Times, did you see things change, or were they pretty much the same? And we've just paid more attention in recent years. Change in what way? Well, in terms of, uh, you know, for me, the high point of journalism in this country was during the Nixon era, when the Pentagon Papers were published over threats uh, and, you know, lawsuits that went all, to, all the way to the Supreme Court. And we don't see uh, journalism confronting the abuse of power uh, in the current era the way it did um, back in the 1970s. Well, because the pressure isn't there. Um, you had publications like Ramparts that were breaking all sorts of stories and shaming the mainstream press because they weren't doing their job. Uh, it's also important to remember that the kinds of activities that were carried out, illegal activities that were carried out against the Democratic Party, including the burglary at Watergate, had been going on for years against anti-war groups and alternative publications, and the mainstream press ignored it. It was only when Nixon started using those means against established power, i.e. the Democrats, that the mainstream media woke up. Before that, they said nothing. These were not new tactics. Uh, They just happened to be used by another segment within the power elite. And once that happened, then the press woke up. Uh, Now... The alternative press is dead, um, and these publications went back to doing what they always do, which is serve entrenched power and their advertisers. Mm-hmm. And so where do you see journalism in the United States going? And, you know, putting aside the work that you do at TruthDig, uh, what do you see as reliable sources, and where do you see... Uh, real active investigative reporting going on. Well, that's part part of the the tragedy of the death of newsprint. We're losing reporting, and we're losing investigative reporting. You have small entities that cling to an ethic of verifiable fact, uh, but. Uh, that gets back to what we spoke about at the beginning, which is this transformation from a print-based culture to an image-based culture. And that transformation includes the destruction of a culture that bases opinions on verifiable fact and into a culture where facts and opinions become interchangeable. Uh, And that the death of newsprint, the death of newspapers, and newspapers, I think, bear 
tremendous responsibility for their own decline. Uh, nevertheless, um, based their reporting on establishing fact, um, their lies were more lies of omission. It's what they didn't say. And uh, as newspapers vanish, that old ethic of establishing opinion on fact vanishes with them. So, um, you know, it gets back to the book, Empire of Illusion. Well, you can believe whatever you want to believe in this culture. Chris Hedges, I want to thank you for joining us today, and I want to direct people to truthdig.com, and if they enter your name in the search window, there's a whole page of your recent uh, articles and commentaries there. And I also just wanted to include a mention of the book that you co-authored with uh, Leila Al-Aryan, the book called Collateral Damage, America's War Against Iraqi Civilians, because it's a small book with a very powerful message, and it ties into what we discussed earlier about how we don't understand the consequences of the military assaults that are initiated and unleashed in our names. And I just really appreciate the range of work you do and the thoughtful approach that you bring to the work that you do. Well, thanks, Peter. And Chris, thank you. Could you stay on the line when we wrap up with the music for two minutes? Yeah. Thank you.